This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Imagine paying a bill when the invoice shows you've been overcharged. That appears to have happened at the City of Toronto during the pandemic. Toronto's Auditor General's report has revealed the City of Toronto was overcharged by as much as $13.2 million for emergency hotel shelter costs over the past two years. This amount included charges that were not part of contracts agreed upon by representatives with the city and the hotels involved. The city was wrongly charged and paid 3% room surcharges labeled DMF, totaling $2.4 million, which some staff describe as destination marketing fees. Also charged and paid $5.3 million in facility surcharges and between 2 and $3 million for rooms that went unused. The AG's report notes that some staffers processing and paying these invoices were not aware of the agreed-upon contracts. On Thursday, when we tune into the town, Libby discussed this concerning revelation with our panelists, Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO, David Crombie, former Toronto mayor, and Anna Bailau, outgoing deputy mayor and Toronto City Councillor for Ward 9 Davenport. It's never acceptable that the city should be uh, overpaying for any services. And, and so... Um, I'm, I'm glad that the Auditor General is uh, looking into these things. Uh, I think she's bang on on all her recommendations, and, and it's very disappointing to see these findings. Um, we know that the shelter support and housing had to move really quickly, and, and so there were clearly things uh, that were not, uh, you know, uh, properly communicated to the accounting. People did not, uh, uh, were not aware of the contracts that were being signed by one department and how to pay the bills. And these things need to be uh, carefully looked at. And uh, there's no excuse. There's, uh, we need to uh, get that, that, that money back. And, uh, and um, we need to follow her recommendations. That's why we have an Auditor General. And that's why we need to, uh, we value her work and her recommendations. I just want to make one point important that, that I, I want to emphasize is that I think we should not, uh, these issues should not um, uh, overcloud the need that there was to pivot into these shelter uh, support services that needed to happen. We had a big pressure at the beginning of the pandemic. This is this was congregate living. The the, the shelter support and housing was was getting advice from our public health that there could be up to thirty percent of of risk of that. In, in yeah, yet I don't think anybody yeah. is arguing that and generally speaking clear i just wanted to make that clear (laughs) generally speaking when when you contract for a service like that uh you maybe pay a deposit but the invoice comes a little later there's it's it's not like it's not on fire nobody's gonna get sick 
you know, uh, about the paying of the invoice. So, David Crombie, I, I mean, does this sound at all familiar to you? How does this happen? Well, it happens from time to time. Of course, as Anna pointed, as Anna pointed out, um, there, there was a, a rush to get things done. I know that that's not a long-term excuse, but certainly it's understandable at the time. I think that we need to really understand is whether or not whether the city thought it was being taken advantage of, uh, or or whether or not um, they were they were simply not doing their job. But I, I think a report uh, by the, the city officials in response to the to the auditor general should be able to tell us that, that, that we'll be able to know uh, more, far more, and be able to make conclusions when we get a report from city officials in response to the attorney general. Lauren, what do you make of it? I mean, I just find it outrageous, frankly. I agree. It is outrageous. And I think the tragic thing here is that with all of that money overspent, they could have housed like 52,000 more nights for people experiencing homelessness. And, and that all just kind of went into these bogus fees. Like this destination marketing fee is what gets me. That's supposed to go towards nonprofits to promote tourism within a region. You get them on your bills in Niagara Falls anytime you stay at a hotel in Ontario. And I mean, this really, like the city of Toronto shouldn't be paying a destination marketing fee to hotels for housing vulnerable people. So um, I'm seeing a lot of people online that are are really upset about this. and And I think that some of the onus here should be put on the hotel operators as well. Like the, the city should have caught this maybe, but I mean, what were the hotel operators doing there? Like, were they hoodwinking the city? Like, no, like, did they know what they were doing or was this just, a- these were really fees that shouldn't have been paid. Let's make it right. I think we did. I think the city did the right thing by having people sheltered in a safe way. And it was actually beneficial for them because those hotels were Empty, and if we weren't going to have those uh, homeless people in those hotels, they would be hem- empty and losing, losing millions and millions of dollars. So, I certainly hope that the city is going to get some cooperation and get these thirteen million dollars uh, back and learn some lessons. There's definitely lessons that are going to be learned in here, and that's why these reports are so important, not only for the situation at play, but also for systemic changes that need to happen inside the city. Anna Bailao, outgoing deputy mayor and Toronto City Councillor for Ward 9 Davenport. Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. And David Crombie, former Toronto mayor. Tune into the town every Thursday on Fight Back after the noon news. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's tied with the biggest rate hike since the year 2000. This past week, the Bank of Canada raised its key policy rate by half a percentage point, the third interest rate hike this year. The increase brings the benchmark rate to 1.5%, just a quarter point below the pre-pandemic level. The goal in hiking interest rates is to bring inflation back under control and cool the overheating economy. And it's an economy that has not been equally hot for everyone. A new report finds that women in Canada faced disproportionate economic losses during the pandemic compared with men. To talk about both of these dynamics, Libby was joined by Catherine Scott, a senior researcher with Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Ian Lee, an associate professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. I've been critical of the Bank of Canada. I think that they uh, they waited too long. 
I wished that what they said and did today had been done a year ago. Inflation and the genie was getting out of the bottle last April, May, June in 2021. We saw it. The numbers were there. But the central bank, and also not to be fair to the Central Bank of Canada, the Bank of England was making the same comments. So was the Federal Reserve saying, ah, temporary, don't get your knickers in a knot. Problem's going to go away. It's going to fix itself. And it's going to, we don't have to do anything. Now they're acknowledging that they made a mistake. Um, the governor of the Bank of Canada said so. The Federal Reserve has said so. So, um, yes, now, quite, very quickly, to your question, will it hurt? Yes, it will. I'm not going to sugarcoat this at all or tell people it's benign and it's not going to affect anybody. It will affect borrowers, to state the obvious. Um, for those who are savers, who are net savers with money in the bank account and buying GICs, they'll make more money because the deposit rates will go up. But for those who have floating rate loans, HELOCs and variable rate mortgages, their payment is going to go up. But last comment, very quickly, Libby, for anyone who thinks that, well, let's kick the problem down the road and maybe it will go away. We learned from the 70s that when you don't confront the inflation and you kick it down the road, it does not make the problem get better. It makes the problem worse and requires even worse or greater intervention later. And that's why we did at that point in that time go to 20%. I'm not suggesting we're going there this time. I don't think it's that bad. But procrastinating and refusing to confront the problem doesn't solve the problem. Catherine Scott, where do women stand in all of this? Uh, You have a report showing that women were disproportionately hit during the pandemic. Uh, We're on the way out of the pandemic now. So where do they stand? We know for for certain that low-income families will be most largely impacted. They're the ones dealing with the rising cost, most acutely dealing with the rising cost of living, particularly food. Obviously, shelter costs have been um, going through the roof. Um, the raising the interest rates, of course, is a pretty blunt policy tool. The Bank of Canada is walking a pretty fine tightrope here, very conscious of the fact, certainly um, Professor Lee alluded to this, that, uh, you know, not wanting to take precipitous action to trigger a recession. Now, those are also rumors in the wind, you know, triggering high levels of unemployment. We can be referring back to the deep recession. So it's a fine line to walk. Um, the heightened interest rates will certainly potentially cool the housing market. It's not going to do a lot around the global sources of inflation right now, such as the war in Ukraine, food supplies, continuing bottlenecks, troubles in China. When we look at like the things that governments can do to deal with economic uncertainty, you know, certainly interest rates are a key tool. But you know, uh, just to say, this is a you know, we can look at the back in the rearview mirror, but I think we need to focus on the concerns right now. What are the you know, struggles of low-income families? And my report highlights the disproportionate number of women who obviously face economic uncertainty. Things are starting to change. We've got a couple of months of data looking at, obviously, the vacancy rates you pointed to. We're starting this past month to see some uh, wages starting to increase for new hires in particular. But, you know, certainly, um, by and large, we also, you know, we're talking about millions of women in different uh, large in care economy occupations and like their wages haven't started to move. So we'll have to see. As I said, my primary concerns certainly are with low-wage workers, how they're doing right now, what the, you know, their, the economic uncertainty they face, dealing with, you know, pretty tenuous situation with rising cost of living. 
Catherine Scott, senior researcher with Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Ian Lee, an associate professor at Carleton University in the Sprott School of Business. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, watch for ticks, more so this year than in previous years. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's tick season, and researchers are warning us that it could be a particularly bad year as the population of ticks carrying Lyme disease is expected to grow across Canada. Ticks that can infect both humans and pets. Last year, the federal government received reports of 2,900 cases of the disease, though that could be low compared with the actual figures, considering that not all cases are reported. It's a disease that can be very hard to diagnose because testing is not that easily available and can be severe. Health experts advise us to be diligent when spending time outdoors, which means wearing long pants tucked into socks, using insect repellent, and thoroughly checking for ticks after returning home. Libby talked more about ticks and Lyme disease when she was joined on Thursday by epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Rob Kaladi, an associate professor of evolutionary ecology and ecological genomics at Queen's University. We don't know for sure, but usually um, when we have uh, cooler uh, wetter temperatures like this, uh, one of the things that keeps ticks down um, and away from us is when it, when temperatures get very hot and dry, ticks have a tendency to dry out. And so they tend to stay down in the litter. But when we get these uh, sort of cooler, wet uh, springs like this, that's just perfect weather where ticks can climb up on a, a blade of grass or a stick and just hang out and just wait uh, until something brushes by and then that's when they they grab on. Dr. Vaisman, uh, what are you expecting? Yeah, certainly there's a lot of people coming in, uh, doing a lot of activities during the summer because of the pandemic. People are excited to go out, so I anticipate there's going to be a lot of presentations to the emergency departments and family doctors and walk-in clinics with patients who have various rashes. And certainly I think it's important for all those clinicians and all those patients to be aware that Lyme disease is increasing in prevalence over the last few years for a variety of reasons, and that people need to be uh, aware that this is a possibility as, in terms of a rash you might experience when you go outside. Okay, Dr. Vaisman, so you see what, what it's, it's a, a ring rash, right? That's right. So the, the name of that manifestation is called erythema migrans, and it's seen in more than three-quarters of the patients who have Lyme disease, and that's really the most important primary manifestation of the illness. And so it's described as a red rash that's at the site of inoculation where the tick was, and sometimes described as a target or a ring form, and usually develops within a few days after having been exposed to the, the tick. So that's the most important thing for people to recognize that it's at the site where the tick bit them and inoculated the Lyme disease. What's this business, Dr. Kalati? I, I remember advice that you have to check for ticks, and if there's a, a tick, you have to pull it off and keep it, but only pull it off in a certain way. Am I uh, on the right track here? Yeah, so so that can certainly help. Uh, you know, um, the the other side of the 
the equation is that there are other pathogens that ticks can carry besides, uh, you know, Borrelia is the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So there, uh, these other diseases are, uh, sorry, other pathogens are not as common, but, um, you know, they're, 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 there's it, still a possibility of, um, of, of, of getting one of these infections. And so that's where having the tick can be particularly helpful, um, for diagnosis. And I, I, I believe the Public Health Ontario labs will, um, will, uh, screen the tick for pathogens. And, uh, that would, that would all be done through, you know, through your physician. Um, but, but as you said, when you're removing the tick, you want to be really careful. Um, you know, the ticks have, if you, you can see some interesting photos online of the, the tick mouth parts, but it, it looks like this, uh, sort of, uh, like if you imagine a, a long mace with these spikes on the side and it just kind of drills down, its head drills down into your skin. Uh, and so as you're pulling it out, you want to be very careful not to just pull it and have the head pop off stuck in your arm. Uh, but you want to reach down and, and slowly pull it out by the head to try to get all of that tick out um, and, and then save it so that it could be tested. That sounds complicated, Dr. Vaisman. You have to pull the tick. What do you do with the tick once you pull it out? And, and do people get this part of it right? It sounds difficult. I w- wouldn't want to be pulling a tick out. Right. So, yeah, if you detect it, just as it was mentioned, uh, you should very carefully pulling the head out so as to not leave the head inside the skin. Once you do remove the tick, uh, what you could do is a few things. You could take a picture of it and send it to your health professional who you're going to see. You could also take it to a local hospital or a walk-in clinic, and they could submit the tick for um, analysis at public health lab. Um, some of that's helpful for epidemiologic reasons. Some of that might be helpful for you personally in order to diagnose what the tick is and what the diseases it might carry. So there are a variety of ticks in Ontario, not all of them. And, and only the, the Ixodes, the one that we've talking about so far, that one carries Lyme disease and other infectious diseases as well. So that's the, really the purpose of, of uh, taking the tick out. Uh, outside of getting rid of the fact that it can transmit the disease to you, what you can do with the tick is actually send it for te- sending it for analysis. Epidemiologist Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Rob Kaladi, associate professor of evolutionary ecology and ecological genomics at Queen's University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. He became a familiar, reassuring presence throughout the pandemic. As Medical Officer of Health for the region of Peel, Dr. Lawrence Lowe presided over one of the hardest-hit areas in the country, working to try to keep residents safe during the COVID-19 crisis and getting them vaccinated amid the rapidly changing science. Peel region was unique during the pandemic because of the many factories and production facilities that required people to continue physically going into work, putting these individuals most at risk of contracting COVID-19 and possibly dying of it. Eventually, workplaces with five or more cases of COVID were required to shut down, which prompted the temporary shutdown of an Amazon warehouse in Peel Region, which was facing an outbreak that employed as many as 5,000 workers. Dr. Lowe is soon changing jobs, but spent some time reflecting on his professional life during COVID when he joined Libby on Wednesday. It has been one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life to serve uh, such a diverse community. And, and granted, even with the challenges 
you know, I think uh, we really did come together as a collective, as a community to look out for each other, uh, all the way from the early days uh, when spread could lead to severity because we were all susceptible uh, to getting 3.3 million uh, needles into arms. That took the work of, you know, our regional council, our partners, our staff at Peel Public Health, and certainly our community uh, coming together to keep each other safe. Do you remember what was the first thing you did? So I remember the very first thing I did was I came back. Um, I was actually away for a spring break. We traditionally spent a spring break with my in-laws who live in another uh, province. And so we were we were out in that province. And I, I quickly said, well, I think I need to return to uh, Toronto to go to work, which seems very quaint now. <laughs> you think about just how everything has, has unfolded with virtual work, etc., and then, of course, on March 16th and 17th, we all remember uh, the first uh, issuance of, uh, of the closures just to stop the spread to keep people safe. Well, yeah, and I, I remember the, the premier saying, go and have your spring break. And that turned out to be a big mistake for a lot of people. Well, you know, I think to the degree that, you know, the premier, everyone was really trying to make do with the information we had at the time. Uh, the one thing that became very clear in mid-March 2020, uh, in mid-March 2020, uh, which is different from today's uh, context, I should add, uh, is that there was a novel virus that was spread in the community, um, and that if it continued to spread, it would spread uh, very rapidly uh, out of control and potentially overwhelm our hospitals and healthcare systems, as was seen elsewhere in the world. Vaccines changed all that, um, and I'm really glad that uh, that you know we're not living in those days uh, back in March 2020 anymore, where this disease presented a very different risk than uh, than I think what it does today. When did you realize that you had a different problem than much of the rest of the city, given the nature of your population? What were your first responses to deal with that? Well, Libby, I think throughout the pandemic, what has what was very clear uh, in the early phases was that anything that remained open where contact was occurring uh, ultimately remained vault to spread and then to severity in an unvaccinated era. And so that's why in the very first wave we saw uh, you know, long-term care homes get hit particularly hard. And that was the same in Peel as it was uh, elsewhere in, in the province. Uh, you know, certainly our teams, uh, together with our long-term care partners, tried their very best to, to address things. But I think where you saw it change in Peel was in the second wave, where there were far more things that were left open than in the first wave. And we suddenly realized that, wow, uh, just given the nature of economic activity in our community, uh, given the nature of being Canada's portal of entry for a lot of essential goods, uh, you know, we have people that are still coming together in contact and uh, contracting the virus. And then subsequent to that, a certain proportion of them uh, ending up in hospital. And, and that really was the story of Peel. It was, uh, you know, ultimately our residents through the second and third waves uh, you know, did their jobs and, you know, and ultimately some got sick and, and some perished so that other people could stay home and stay safe online. You took some very tough decisions. What was the toughest one? I think for me, the most difficult decision uh, was to um, to issue the closures around uh, around uh, schools in April uh, 2021. Uh, this was because we were just seeing our vaccine program uh, get caught up, uh, get, get started, but it wasn't going to get caught up to the virus. Um, and at the time, while we did know that schools were largely safe with all the protective measures that were in place, uh, the community transmission had gotten to a point where we couldn't uh, 100% assure that anymore. There were just so many exposures and cases being reported in our community. It was a tough decision, uh, but I think we'd gotten to that threshold where I said, you know, we, we really need to work with our school partners to ensure that that community is remaining safe at that time back in April and Peel.
Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Peel Region's Outgoing Medical Officer of Health. He is moving on to be the Executive Director and CEO of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Patty in Etobicoke phoned about the hotels where homeless people have been housed during the pandemic, some of which overcharged the city of Toronto. With my work, I go to a lot of these hotel shelters every week. And I'm telling you now, the city will never get its money back because these hotel owners are going to be claiming damages. The condition of these hotels on the outside I can only imagine the inside. I I go into the lobbies and use the bathrooms, but they're never going to get their money back. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Jeff in Port Perry, who phoned about delays at Pearson Airport. There's definitely a lot of duplication in the, the number of times we're asked to show our passport and do security checks. Um, what I'm not finding is that the COVID protocols are not a hindrance to me as a traveler at all. Where I find the roadblocks are, first of all, the, the issue of cancelling flights at the last minute. We just came back from Honduras and we had to rebook our flight three times wow. because the airlines kept canceling. It was insane and it took us an extra day to get home. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.